Hello, my name's Marnie Og, and as always, I'm very grateful to have you join Dark Sky Conversations today. Uh, this conversation is an, is an exciting one. It's covering the aspects of the impacts of light at night caused by satellite mega constellations, such as those being launched by Elon Musk and other uh, organisations around the world. You'll hear my guest Jessica Heim discuss her research and diverse ways these tens of thousands of satellites will make not only on our night sky, but through the risk of increased space junk and clutter. Jessica's a resident in Missouri, but she feels close to Australia um, as, she's a as she's a student at the University of Southern Queensland. I had the joy of meeting Jessica at a conference in Salt Lake City a few years ago and knew then that her zeal for dark skies would see her go far. Uh, it's really not surprising at all to see that this paper, in collaboration with Joram Barentine, another Dark Sky conversationist, uh, has received a great deal of attention in the Australian media and abroad. And if you'd like to, you can read this on the website of the conversation piece or even by searching articles on the ABC News. But for now, enjoy our conversation together, me and Jessica Heim. Hi. With a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? Starfield Sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og, and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again. It's been a little while between Dark Sky Conversation podcasts, but I'm delighted to have a lady with me today, Jessica Heim from America. And in fact, Jessica, I'm just going to throw straight to you. Whereabouts are you speaking to me from today? I'm in Minnesota. Okay. Is that your hometown? Is that where you're based? Um, Minnesota. Yeah, I'm from Minnesota. So yeah, it's like north central US. We're just south of Canada. Okay. Yeah, I know where you are, right in the middle of the country pretty much. Um, so tell me, you. I've seen you describe yourself as a cultural astronomer. And I guess I'd just love to hear what that means, what drew you to it, and in fact, what drew you to dark skies at all? Okay, let's see here. The very, um, do you want the abridged version or the full version? <laughs> no, you can tell me. Yeah, go for it. Tell me all okay, of it. Okay, once hmm? upon a time. Okay, um, so <laughs> yeah, I, I was always really interested in the night sky growing up. Um, my dad um, showed me a lot of the constellations, you know, the Greek constellations, and so he'd take me out and look at the stars, and so I was aware of that from a young age. I liked um, reading books on outer space and, you know, just about everything else, you know, dinosaurs, anything mm -hmm. outdoor, nature, mm -hmm. but I always thought space was cool. Um, and then when I was in high school, my mom got me this really cool um, curriculum in my 12th grade year on astronomy. And I'm like, oh, this is super, super cool. I really, really like this is like kind of intro to astrophysics stuff. And I really mm -hmm. liked it. Um, and then with my college degree, I focused on music and environmental studies. So I double majored. And so like, I felt like everything was in my environmental studies, except the sky. It was all the earth stuff, but it was missing the top half. Interesting. Um, yeah. And mm. then 
um, you know, several years after I graduated, you know, I was just, you know, trying to figure out, well, what did I want to do for a master's program? I looked at all these different programs. I'm like, oh, that's interesting, but nah, I don't think I'll apply. That's interesting too. I'm uh, not quite right. And so I was looking at classes at my local university. Um, I thought, oh, I'll just take a college class in some random thing that might be interesting. And um, there was a class offered on archaeoastronomy, and I read the class description. And it was like, oh, learn about, you know, different cultures, different times in human history and what people knew about the stars and how the stars were important in their lives. And I'm like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And so I emailed mm. the professor um, and she said, oh, well, if you don't really need the class for credit, don't take it now this summer online. Wait until the fall and you can take it in person in the planetarium. And I thought, oh, well, that sounds really cool. I'll take a class in a planetarium. And so that was um, Dr. Annette Lee um, and C. Um, that summer, it was the first summer she was offering the Native Skywatchers um, Educator Workshop program for K-12 teachers and how to, you know, learn about Ojibwe and Dakota Star knowledge and integrate it into their curriculum and things like that. And so I attended her workshop and I thought, oh, this is really, really interesting stuff. And I was talking to her at the end of the workshop and she's like, well, you should come and, you know, volunteer at the planetarium. I'm like, well, what would I do if I volunteered at the planetarium? She's like, well, you can learn to operate the equipment and eventually, you know, do your own shows. And I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool. And so I took that uh, archaeoastronomy class that semester. And then, um, you know, over time, and I was like TAing for the class, helping out with stuff and odds and ends. And you know, started doing stuff at the planetarium. And I did shows there for quite a number of years. And and one um, semester, she had a textbook for her class, and it was talking about there was on the back cover. It said the author directed this master's program in cultural astronomy. And I'm like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And I asked her, oh, what do you think about this? And she's like, well, this summer I'm I'm going out and I'm presenting some of my research at a conference they're hosting. You know, I can find out some more about the program, you know, while I'm there. And then I emailed them and asked some questions. I'm like, oh, this looks like a really good fit. This looks really interesting. And so that's how I enrolled in that master's program. And so, yeah, what cultural astronomy is, is basically just as opposed to just your traditional Western astronomy, which just looks at the sky and we just study the stuff in the sky, completely devoid of humans. We just study that and that's it. The cultural astronomy connects that to humans. And so like, you know, how did different communities, cultures, star knowledge impact their navigation, their agricultural practices, their stories, culture, religion, all sorts of different aspects of that. And so cultural astronomy is very broad and interdisciplinary and different people will study different aspects of it. So like some people come at it from a traditional astronomy background. Some people have degrees in say history or anthropology or archeology span and um, so it's very diverse. Archaeoastronomy typically is used a little bit more to refer to things you think of as like Stonehenge or like a particular site where, you know, you have an alignment yeah. where the sunlight comes through on the summer solstice and lights up some particular part of the structures. You know, what you typically think of, archaeoastronomy is broader than that, but usually it refers to more of like an archaeological site. But sometimes it's used interchangeably with cultural astronomy. And cultural astronomy is broader because it includes all those other their perspectives as well, not just a physical site, but like, the, you know, what is the ethnography and the different cultural knowledge and that type of thing. Um, so that's kind of how I got into the cultural astronomy. And as far as dark skies specifically, uh, I mean, I was always aware of the concept of light pollution, I think, even before I heard of the name, because like when I was really little, my dad would talk about oh, you know, when we first moved here, there weren't any lights over there, and now you can see these lights, and it was totally dark before, and then, 
you know, if the neighbors would put in some really bright light, he'd be like, ah, they're putting in that stupid light. Like, yeah, see the stars. And, ah. So I was aware of the concept from a long time. But then when I was getting towards working on my dissertation during my master's program, and I was trying to figure out what exactly do I want to do for my in-depth research, that was about the time that the price on the LEDs went down. So they were being put in everywhere and all the street lights. And it was those super bright white lights and I just noticed that like my sky which was always my stress reliever like no matter how stressed I was I'd go outside and I'd look at the stars and I'd feel so much better and then my stars were disappearing and so it was just like there was so much more sky glow and then I'd go out to look at the stars and I'd get really angry about it and so I thought either I'm going to go up in a puff of smoke or I'm going to do something constructive so then what I did for my dissertation was I was looking at well what's an example of people using LED street lights in a better way, like looking at a lower color temperature and downward directed. And so I was going to different um, IDA um, conferences and trying to pick people's brains about, okay, so is there a really good example of this? I've seen all sorts of bad examples. Tell me about a good example. I want to study, you know, a best case scenario. And I was looking and at- how did that go? options yeah it was it was interesting i found a lot of you know moderately bad options but what i ended up doing was a study (laughs) in stanley idaho where they had put in it was a very small community but they put in 2200 kelvin street lights that were very minimal glare and all those type of things and so i studied what they um did as far as the technical aspect of the lights themselves and then also how did they actually implement this as a community and i interviewed the mayor and various people in the community Um, So that's kind of how I got into dark skies in the more um, academic sense of it. Mm. It's interesting. I I always ask people how you get into dark skies. And there's usually a story there about, you know, childhood past going out and looking at the night sky or or even if it's not necessarily in their childhood, that sense of recognizing the the peace that the night sky gives people. You know, I I understand that that you're saying... um, it was your stress reliever because I know I would go out at my house when I was a child and look up at the stars and I don't know, everything sort of just fell back into place and it was easier to deal with. So Yeah. But it sounds like, I mean, and, and this is partly why I've contacted you to speak today because um, partly because of the, the, the buzz that um, was drawn by some research that you've put out recently. It hit the Australian press um, about the satellite mega, mega const- satellite mega constellations. And the work that you've been doing with regards to that. Now, I'm, I just want to go back a step. You were also in studying with the University of Southern Queensland. Have you been out to Australia or have you just been doing your research remotely? I've been doing my research remotely thus far. At, at some point, I hope to come and visit, but thus far, I, I've been able to do things remotely. I just started okay. last year, so... I was going to ask you to compare the night skies, not northern and southern hemispheres, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll get you back on to do that. But yeah, as I was saying, the the piece that that's driven a lot of conversation recently is about this estimation of having a hundred thousand satellites in orbit by the end of this decade, and the impacts of that on our night sky. I was just, okay. do you want to give us a little bit of background on how that piece came together, and yeah, what was the impetus to 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 start looking at this? Yeah, so um, I guess, yeah, after I finished my cultural astronomy degree, I was starting to look a little bit more at the satellite constellation phenomenon because like before I was looking at ground-based stuff, like what we're doing on Earth that impacts the night sky. And I was really interested in, well, what's happening 
in the orbit around Earth and how is that impacting how we see the night sky from Earth and then also how is that impacting that environment itself so kind of two aspects of that and so yeah the you know we've had satellites in orbit for decades that's nothing new but it's the sheer quantity and pace that is what is new so like to give a sense of the scale um like before the first starlink satellites launched in may 2019 the estimate was there was about 2200 active functional satellites um and then now the most recent estimates i've looked at are about 7600 um, and then, yeah, the estimates for how many will there be by the end of the decade, you know, the most commonly cited number is 100,000. Um, sometimes people will say 400,000. And where those numbers come from, it's like, what have companies actually filed in their respective countries? And so there's one particular constellation that Rwanda um, had said that they're going to do that is, I can't remember the specific number, but somewhere in the realm of 400,000 satellites. And so then the astronomers look at those numbers and go, okay, well, what's actually going to, you know, be launched? And so, you know, we're thinking probably the 100,000 is probably the lower end of what's reasonable. I mean, it could be more. And of course, if there's something bizarre or catastrophic that happens, maybe it'll be less. But that's kind of the estimate of what we're thinking will probably happen. And what's different with these is just like these are in low Earth orbit, so closer to Earth Um and they're very large groups of constellations. Like, you know, the mega constellation refers to like really big. So not just like, oh, you know, 50 or 100 satellites, but like thousands or tens of thousands in a given company's. Um, and, and I guess we should mention the size of these satellites as well. They're not, they're not what we've known previously, are yeah, they? Well, it not... depends on the specific satellite. Because, I mean, it gets really, you know, you have what we're talking about is, you know, your bigger satellites i think the rough estimate i've heard is they're like the size of a car or a truck or a bus you know that kind of range i haven't seen one in person um like as far as like starlink generation one there are also a lot of um you know smaller things little cube sats going up and those are tinier um but you know, with the second generation that uh, SpaceX plans to launch this year, those are projected to be substantially bigger with bigger mirrors. Then you also have things like Blue Walker 3, um, and they've only launched one object so far. But th those are things you're talking about, like the size of a huge room. And so there's concern about those as well, because of they could be very likely extremely bright. So... The concern is like twofold with the satellites is somewhat how bright an individual satellite is and then also the sheer quantity of them is another part of the issue and all those numbers those are we're talking about things that are functional you know there's tons of pieces of space debris out there thousands and possibly millions of untrackable debris when it's too small we can't track it and it's still dangerous if it hits something we just don't know where it is well, there's that often cited um, incident with just a fleck of paint that had come off one of the, um, I think it's one of the space shuttles, wasn't it? Or did it go into the window of one of the space shuttles? I think and, it went into yeah, the window was... of one of the shuttles, yeah. And it was, yeah, yeah you can see how it cracked things. And, and they went into full alert. You know, they were really concerned about it. They? they had to shut, you know, protect, you know, it was an emergency situation for the for the astronauts in, in the, at the time. So, yeah. So... 
So you, you make the comment that it's going to be harder for astronomers to do their research. And, and actually, I think the other part of this is, is, is due to the diffuse night sky brightness. So what does that mean exactly to, you know, on a general lay, lay understanding, what does that mean? What, yeah, what's diffuse yeah, so night sky brightness and how is it going to make it harder? Yeah. So two aspects. So the one that most people probably think of with the satellites is just the concept of, okay, you look up at the sky and you see a bright object go by. And if you're a astrophotographer or a professional astronomer, then that thing goes through your field of view. And so you have this streak. So that's what has been talked about a lot is, you know, these streaks. How do we make the satellites less bright so they are not and streaking? And that's going to particularly impact the Vera Rubin telescope? Yeah. That... It, well, because, mm -hmm. I mean, the... There's a lot of aspects of astronomy that can be impacted, but like the concept of the streaks going through, I mean, with Vera Rubin is going to be very wide field and also long exposure time. So you combine that and you have the opportunity for a lot of stuff going through your field of view. So that's mm -hmm. that aspect of it. But then what we were looking at specifically was the diffuse night sky brightness. And what that is, is it's the stuff that's up there on um, both in tap satellites and then to a larger degree, all the debris and stuff that's smaller, it all still reflects sunlight. And if it's smaller dim, you might not be able to see it as an individual point source of light in the sky. But what it does is overall, it's a stuff reflects and it would make this dark sky less dark overall. And so uh -huh. we were looking at for Vera Rubin specifically, well, how much, you know, do we think that that would impact Vera Rubin having that increase in um, the night sky brightness. And so what we had estimated was that, well, they, Vera Rubin would be able to resolve out some of those as individual um, sort point sources of satellites. So then you'd have, okay, more streaks, but all the stuff that they couldn't resolve as in the individual point sources, that would just make the sky brighter. And so that we figured would be about a 7.5% reduced efficiency, which would equate to um, approximately 22 million U.S. dollars additional to do the same amount of science because of the lost efficiency. So, I guess I was trying to relate these to, you know, everyday things. So, you know, if you had, if you knew your car was running 7%, 7.5% less efficient, you know, you had to put extra fuel in to make it work, we'd be doing something about it, wouldn't we? We'd be changing the, we'd feel it. We'd want to make well, a difference. Mm. And the thing is too with that is those numbers um, are kind of conservative estimates because the models were based on what was the rate of increase in numbers that were prior to 2019. We were not including the uptick that has happened since 2019. So if that continues to uh, occur at the rate that it currently is, and if we have more collisions because the satellites are closer together, there's a greater odd that something could hit, or if we have more ASAT tests, anything that creates more debris, um, it will make it more pronounced than what our models suggested because we were going on the conservative end. So it's kind mm, of a baseline. And I guess that, that would be an exponential growth. Right? Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Dark Sky Conversations with Marnie Ock. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And you said we. Um, who did you collaborate with on this? Yeah, so there's several of us. The lead author um, is John Barentine, um, and then Aparna Benkatesen, myself, James Lowenthal, 
um, and I'm not sure if I have their names pronounced quite properly because they're not English, but Miroslav Kosovec and Salvador Berra, and I probably messed up on their last name pronunciation slightly because <laughs> I don't speak those languages. But yeah. um, and, and we've actually had John interview on this podcast previously, well known to for his work with the IDA and now doing his Dark Sky okay. Consultancy. And Miroslav, I understand, he's up. He's actually in the University of Southern Queensland, I think, isn't he? Yeah. His name is familiar like, to me. Mm, I think so. Anyway. <laughs> I work so, closely with John in, and Aparna and James because we're all on the um, American Astronomical Society's committee um, that's focused on space debris and light pollution issues. So we see each other all the time in our committee meetings. Yeah. And, and, can, and well done on, on the work that you're doing because this is really raising the awareness, you know, there's definitely people that ring in to radio stations and in emails that we receive um, asking, you know, what are the bright streaks across the night sky? And there's a, there's a little bit of sense of fear around it, I think. You know, the, the natural reaction for people who ma maybe don't look at the night sky frequently is to think, oh, you know, it's an alien or a spaceship or yeah. maybe it's a, it's a, you know, it's a spacecraft as, you know, Earth, earthly spacecraft that's disintegrating or something. There have all been comments that I've, I've seen. So in some ways, it's great that people are tuning into the night sky and seeing that there's a difference and a change. And then when we do explain to them that these are little satellites, well, these are satellites that are being launched um, by, by the tens of thousands, basically, for the use of internet, satellite, uh, GPS tracking systems, etc. And from what I've heard also for gaming, people are a little bit shocked by it, you know, that even if they don't understand the full um, enormity of the situation, they are sort of shocked that we could be doing so much to our natural environment with, you know, no, I don't know, no real understanding of what's going on, I think, or or that it, that it seems to be something that is unnecessary given we've got other ways of, you know, communicating with, you know, internet, etc. So... It is an interesting one, um, and and there are benefits to the, the Starlink and other constellations that are going up there that shouldn't be ignored. Um, so I, I guess the question is, where do you think the future of this is going to go? Do you think, yeah? Well, I guess do you have my a, a, a view of it. Is, mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess my concern is just the nature of the business environment. I mean, it it prioritizes okay well you know what you know an individual company can go okay well what is in my best interest what's good for my sustainability of my business from my perspective and it's kind of the whole concern of the tragedy of the commons where you have every individual actor who's like okay well i'm going to do this this is in my best good and then you end up not having a very great resource availability or like when you think of collapse of fisheries or things like that you know where a lot of nah. people have access to something and then you know, you sometimes have problems. And so I think that there really isn't a lot of incentive to look at this over a much longer term time horizon. Like, I think that there's a lot of concern about space debris and the space situational awareness in these industries. They're very cognizant of the fact that space debris is a problem and it's, you, know, you don't want to have an unsafe um, business environment. But I think it's so much of this, okay, well, you know, whoever gets there first gets XYZ yeah. orbital allocation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have the question of, well, what is 
you know, an orbit's carrying capacity. You know, space is big. There's a lot of room, but it's not infinitely big. People used to think that, oh, yeah, the ocean was really big. And we started realizing, oh, wait, if you put enough garbage in it, it does start creating a problem after there a while. Are. And so... Yeah, it's just, you know, looking at that long-term time horizon and, you know, some people will say, well, you know, if we just have increased space situational awareness, then we can um, put things closer together. If we know where everything is and we can maneuver everything, well, then it will be safer to have things closer together. But you always have so many things that are unpredictable, like, okay, if you have a hardware malfunction, then you can't control one of your satellites or more. Or let's say you have some really extreme space weather and your satellites get knocked out or you can't communicate or somebody hacks into the system and you can't control it. Or you have an ASAT test that creates a whole bunch more debris and things can just get unpredictable very quickly. So it's very hard to come up with like a specific number on, okay, well, we're going to put XYZ number of satellites in a particular shell. And so then you'll have, well, this, you know, one orbit's getting, you know, a little bit fuller. So then another company will say, oh, well, we're going to be safer. So we're going to launch at a higher orbit. Well, you know, then you have issues of, well, well, is this equitable in the long term? Is it whatever countries and businesses, you know, have the money now can go fill up those orbits? So what about the people who come later? I think it's just currently it's not, you know, the... It's a bit Saturday of a race to the bottom, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah. For many yeah. decades will create a problem at some point in time. Mm. You brought up some really good different points. I mean, I, I do remember that um, one of the batches of Starlink that went up, I, I have a feeling they they were actually not usable because there was a big auroral surge or magnetic surge. And so I think they just got wiped out. Um, yeah, last year there were a number yeah. of them that, yeah, they didn't make it. Yeah. And I think in one of the reports I was reading, it also mentioned the fact that, you know, this could become a, a, a target for, for war as well. Um, yeah, yeah, you could well, completely it's... eradicate systems, et cetera, that if we're basing, you know, if we're too, I mean, I guess it's the same with land-based things, but if we're too heavy reliant on it, then, um, yeah, it's an interesting tactic, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of um, different areas and issues and concerns that can intersect and the thing about space is it's just you know if you have an environmental disaster on earth it can be challenging to clean up and but like in space it's very even more challenging and stuff's going so fast so something that's intrinsically just an object a little pleck of fleck of paint that isn't dangerous really if it's flying around at thousands of miles an hour it suddenly becomes a dangerous projectile and it's just not uh, you know right. easy to just go okay well, we'll just vacuum up all the debris well we don't even know where a lot of the smaller stuff is and we can't track the super small things so you know um, yeah so we've talked a lot about the space impacts of these mega constellations but Coming back to the, you know, the, the cultural connection to the night sky, is there any connection there that you see is also being damaged or any impacts to cultural connections? Yeah, well, you know, see, part of some of the conversations that are, you know, going on between the satellite operators and the astronomers is focusing on, you know, different mitigation. So one aspect is, okay, well, can you make the satellites less bright or make them glint less or things like that? And then there's also efforts that are being put into, well, how can we have software that will help, you know, remove some of the impacts? It still will be impacts, but, you know, from the research astronomer's perspective, are there things we can do that will help us 
you know, revive some of our data. Um, but the thing mm. is, like those type of things are not going to help for if you're just out there looking at the sky in real time, you know, with the naked eye or with your backyard telescope or binoculars, you're going to see a lot of things. Um, and yeah, it will very much transform what the night sky looks like. And so, yeah, like the cultural aspects of that, like with, um, I was on the American Astronomical Society did the SATCON 2 workshop um, back in 2021. And we had a community engagement working group as part of that. And we had several people who um, were from different indigenous communities. And, you know, they expressed a lot of concerns. And, you know, the concerns were multifold. I think one is obviously it's changing the sky. And so many of these um, cultures have, it's not like the sky is just this extra thing up there. It's very deeply ingrained. The above and the below are very much connected. And so it's seen as problematic um, to the ability to continue the traditions and the cultural knowledge if all of a sudden your sky is all changed up. And then another thing that was mentioned a lot as well is just the consultation aspect because a lot of people that I've spoken to from those communities are like, okay, all these changes are being made and then we, we weren't consulted. And then a lot of times the PR about it is, okay, well, we're going to you know, provide, you know, these satellites will provide internet to the rural poor. And there's examples of places where people have benefited from that. But, you know, is it, is that really the best way to have development as you come in and say, oh, guess what? I have this great thing for you to use. Or do you ask the community, so what do you want? How do you want to participate? I, I think it's kind of a continuation of a model um, that has been problematic in a lot of ways. And so there's a lot of people talking about how, you know, there needs to be more consultation, more um, involvement in decision-making processes. So there's a whole bunch of different aspects to it. But yeah, it definitely stands to have a lot of um, cultural impacts as well. And there are people who are concerned about um, not only the night sky, but like, wh what are we doing in space? And should we be engaging with it in that way? Is that a proper way to treat the space environment. You have discussions on, well, is space part of the human environment or not? And you can have yeah. people from very diverse perspectives on that. And then that has legal implications as well, because if you say that orbital environment is not part of the environment, then you don't have to subject your launches to doing environmental impact assessments first, as far as how it impacts that particular environment. And so, yeah, there's a lot of implications on how you define things. And I have seen or, or heard uh, comments made about, you know, astronomers have had a, had a clear night sky basically for, for tens of, you know, well, tens of thousands of years, really. And now it's just becoming polluted and, and, and maybe they should just accept that because that's what we do. We just basically move from one thing to the next and, and you know, we've had to deal with polluted waterways, we've had to deal with air pollution and all the other bits and pieces. So maybe astronomers now are just feeling the impact of human civilization. And that that's almost said in a way that, well, you know, that's just progress really. But it, to me, it's a bit sad that we can't think about things before we destroy them. Well, I <laughs> um, think it's a and, problem yeah. because, you know, one argument I've heard um, that every astronomer hears from time to time is, oh, well, you know, you just... You put all your telescopes in space and that'll solve all the problems. And then, you know, there you go. And I mean, there's several reasons why that's not practical other than, okay, yeah, it's expensive putting stuff in space. But 
like ground-based and space-based astronomy are complementary. There's different things that are strengths and weaknesses with both of them. And like, for example, James Webb, you know, we're not going to be able to go out and fix it if something goes wrong. You, you do uh, your astronomy uh. on Earth, you need to sometimes calibrate your equipment depending on what you're doing, and you can fix things if they break. So you have that aspect from research astronomy. And then from um, looking at, okay, space telescopes, they are also liable to be impacted by space debris. And they'll, st you know, if they're in low Earth orbit, they're still going to have all those streaks going through their field of view. They can get uh -huh. hit. You know, there's been uh -huh. things coming out about, you know, how Hubble you know, has streaks going through it and, you know, what is the impact of debris on Hubble images and how will that get worse? So, and it's not like if you just put something in space, it'll be better. And I just, I think there's a fundamental problem with the concept of like, you know, you're cutting off the entire planet's access to be able to see a dark night sky anywhere. Like, you know, when you have a light polluted city, you can go, you know, away. It's hard to find in a way, but you know, you can go to a remote place and you'll have a darker sky, but the satellites will be visible everywhere. The impact of what we're doing in orbit will envelop, you know, the entire planet. And it just, something seems wrong that like, you know, we're completely making it so future generations will never be able to have that, you know, ease of access to the cosmos in the same way. I mean, like when you look at the night sky, it's like you're connecting to the past, not only the sky itself but you know the associated traditions and you know you're just kind of it's creating this more insular view where you're like not seeing out and being inspired by the universe i i think there's something ethically problematic about that yeah i think i think you're right and for that reason i really thank you for doing the research that you've done and bringing it to people's attention and and I, no doubt this is just the beginning for you. I can see that you, you're someone that just loves getting into the nitty gritty and, and, and researching the details and, and seeing how we can make our world a better place, which takes you right back to the beginning of our conversation about your first degrees and your first elements of study. And um, I think on that note, we might finish up. Other, to, other than to ask you a question, what do you think your future is? I should ask you rather than me throwing it back onto you. Yeah. What, where, yeah, where do, what's next for you? Mm. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, um, working on getting through my PhD, um, yeah. trying to finalize some of my research, what exactly I want to be doing with different aspects of the research. I'm trying to get that all finalized because it's, I'm doing something, I mean, it's very kind of interdisciplinary because you're looking at the science, but then there's also the policy, the ethics, and I really think there's value in all those perspectives. And so I'm trying to figure out like which aspects are going to be you know, with more with one disciplinary focus on what's going to be more of the science and all of that type of thing. But I'm really interested in looking at, you know, what are, what can we learn from um, what we're doing around the earth and looking ahead to like the moon and, you know, what are we going to do? There's a lot of things in progress for, you know, putting satellites around the moon. And so, for example, radio astronomers have always said, oh, we could put an observatory on the far side of the moon because it's a radio quiet zone and it would be great. Um, but it won't really be um, any different than Earth um, at the rate we're going if unless something changes more proactively um, with that. And cause, like, we've been all discussing this whole time about optical astronomy, but radio astronomy stands to be very impacted by the satellites as well. Um, so uh, just different parts uh, of the spectrum are impacted differently. And so, yeah, I'm interested in looking at aspects of how we engage with the environment around the moon and on the lunar surface and kind of the intersection of science activities and policy and how those can all work together or not. 
Well, I think you raise a really good point. There's no one way of dealing with this. And, and, and actually, I think the biggest challenge that we have is that most of the time things go wrong because groups aren't, as you mentioned before, consulting. So whether it's with First Nations people or whether it's, whether it's policymakers or ecologists or space scientists, etc., we we don't have broad enough conversations so, to know how things are going to impact each element or what best policies are to, to, to be put into place. So it, it's not a quick solution, but I think with research, conversation, policy and just general community awareness, you know, I think as much as that's pretty much the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance's philosophy is that we just need to talk about this, bring it to people's awareness and bright minds will come up with solutions, but it, until we know there's a problem and we're not talking about it, no, nothing's going to change basically. So yes, being, being topics of conversation. But on that note, Jessica, I will thank you very much. But one other question I have for you is where can people learn more about you? If you've got a LinkedIn page or anything like that, that people could read more? Yeah. Um, I'm not on social media. Uh -huh. so... <laughs> That's probably why you get so much done. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. At some point in time I'll get a website together, I guess, but yeah, I'm just kind of in the earlier stages of, you know, getting research published and stuff. And so yeah, I guess I don't have a particular recommendation other than just googling my name and um keywords relating to satellites and cultural astronomy and then you can see what I'm up to. Fantastic. Thank you very much. We'll do that for sure. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks.